Well, I've got a tough assignment this morning. I'm supposed to put Titus to sleep. Shouldn't have any trouble doing that, should I? I know you all agree with that. I should do a very good job with that assignment that I have. Um, but anyway, I'll do my best. I'll put it that way. We're living in times like no other. Not a revelation, but turbulent times. And I want to read to you the first statement of our Constitution Declaration of Faith. And I want to start off with this this morning because I think it's so important to realize the significance of God's Word. Now, I'm, I'm sure you probably don't need this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It says in our Declaration of Faith from Wayside Chapel, it says, this church recognizes the following articles of faith of its views of, on its views of Christian doctrine. It says this, the Old and New Testament scriptures were written by man, divinely inspired, and are the only sufficient and perfect rule of faith and practice. Now, that's a brief statement, but it's an important statement tells us that we believe that God's Word is the final, ultimate authority in every area of faith and practice. This means that we must allow God's Word to be the final arbiter of any kind of a discussion that we have in any area. And that's important, especially in our world today, and especially in light of the passage we're going to look at why I'm dealing with this first of all. We believe that the author gives meaning to the text, right? We've been through this before. What does that mean? That means that if you write something, then you are the one who puts the meaning on this. Now, this has wide implications in our Constitution. It has wide implications in our country today because we are right now facing individuals who want to reinterpret our laws and our Constitution to, mean the, to make them mean anything they want them to mean, right? But we believe as a church that whenever a person writes, the person who has the authority is the person who does the writing. If I write a love letter to my wife back when we were dating, which was a long time ago, she might read some things into it, but I know what I said. And what I wrote was the true meaning of the message, right? It wasn't what she sort of dreamed up in her, in her mind. And the same thing is true in Scripture. God is the one who's the author. He's the one who gives the meaning. It becomes our responsibility not to sit around and say, now what's this mean to you? Because it really doesn't matter what it means to you. It's what God said that's important. And so we have to always remember that God's Word is authority, and that's what the statement means here when it comes to the first sentence of our, uh, our first doctrine of our Articles of, Confe uh, of Confederation, Articles of, of Declaration here at our church, that God's Word is what gives authority. And so, therefore, that means that you and I and no group of churches or no bishops or hierarchy have any right to change the meaning of what Scripture states. That's important because if we can change it to mean whatever we want, who becomes the final authority? We do. And it becomes fluid in order to be interpreted any way we want to interpret it. 
Therefore, we have to understand that we have to always get the meaning of Scripture and then apply that because there is only one meaning to Scripture. That's God's meaning, right? If the author gives the text meaning, then that's the only place you have authority is in Scripture as a God. And so that's true. And we're living in a day and age where that is really passing away rather rapidly. In our passage this morning, John MacArthur's commentary, he makes this statement that I want to just sort of uh, peruse with you. It says, the role of women in the church is a topic that's hotly debated today. I would think, boy, all of us could say that's for sure. Unfortunately, the debate has left the pages of Scripture to find its resolution, and that's also very true. The traditional doctrines are being swept away by a flood tide of evangelical feminists. Churches, schools, and seminaries are rapidly abandoning truths that have held since the inception. Dozens of books are being written defining the new truth regarding the role of women. Ironically, some of the authors of these books formerly held the traditional biblical approach, but under pressure... They have abandoned biblical accuracy in favor of the culture. That's a true statement. We are living in that kind of an age today where the opinions of the day seem to be the final arbiter of truth instead of a declared statement such as Scripture in our case. But even in the world in which we live today, everything seems to be fluid and everything seems to be up for grabs. So as we approach our subject this morning, we are going to do so from the backdrop of Scripture and what Scripture tells us. And today, I'll just put this disclaimer out there. If anyone has a problem, then they need to take it up with God, right, in the Bible, because this is what He states and what He says in His Word. The word we're going to use here is the word, look at is the word submission. That becomes the key word for a wife in the husband-wife relationship. I'm amazed today that we are seeing that even left out of marriage vows. Isn't that a, isn't that a tragedy? Whenever it's found in God's word, it's so plain to leave it out would seem to me to, to be a tragedy when it comes to any kind of scriptural interpretation. But it's, done, it's being done because the word itself means to come under the rank of. I read this illustration. A colonel may be a better person than the private, but it's still the arrangement of the military. The same thing can be true when it comes to the home. This has nothing to do with character, or it should. It has everything to do with what God is stating in His Word. And we're going to be looking at this as we go through this section this morning. And submission really is the key to spiritual growth. We saw this yesterday as men together in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says we are to submit ourselves one to another. There's three things that you and I, and it was your devotions for Thursday. I trust you uh, follow along with me on those. But the point is that when you're filled with the Spirit, you do three things, don't you? You are, first of all, you have a song in your heart, which we just got finished doing. You also are thankful, and I'm thankful I'm here today. I trust you are too. But then we submit to one another. And that is a sign in your life that you are spirit-filled. We submit to the authority that's over us. And of course, God is the one who's ultimately over us. And all of us are under some kind of authority today. Some person. 
And this is written for a genuine, now notice this definition, a genuine Christian woman who wants to honor God and have a strong testimony for Him. This is written for ladies who were sold out for the gospel, who wanted to do all they could to see the gospel move forward into the town of Ephesus, which was a pagan place by every understanding of any type of historical interpretation. And so this is done not from demand, but it's done from a willing heart. And this passage deals with a willing heart because this is a hard subject to demand, to say the least. But when we find ourselves under the authority of God's Word, placed under the authority of God's Word, then our first response is, what can I do to be a person who God can bless? So this morning, three things I want you to notice with me. First of all, it's going to be appearance. Secondly, attitude. And third, abode. Father, I pray that as we spend these moments looking at the order that Paul gave to Timothy for the church, it will encourage our hearts. Help us to be individuals that look to you for strength and guidance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Appearance. Timothy deal, I'm sorry, Paul deals first of all with appearance. He says, in verse 9, in like manner. So we got to go back to verse 8, and he says there that he wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. We saw that last Sunday morning, so we're not going to repeat that. But prayer must be a part of our worship service. If it's not, then it's not a worship service to God, is how Paul is telling the Timothy. And he says the same situation occurs when it comes to ladies. He says in like manner also women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. You know, we first of all start positively here, don't we, in this situation. We talk about her, her adornment. Verse 9 talks about the adornment that a lady has. That would be A on our outline. And he says, the adornment is something that she wants to have in her heart. She's going to adorn herself. The word adorn is an interesting phrase. It has the idea of arranging things. That's where we get our word for cosmetics. You know what cosmetics are. I know what cosmetics are. Those are those things. I, I hate to quote you know, John R. Rice, but I probably will before it's too long. John R. Rice made this statement, if the old barn needs a fresh, paint, a fresh coat of paint, then go ahead and paint it. Right, you know, so that's sort of, that was his way of just saying, you know, it's adornment. It's nothing to do, but it's negative here. It's simply the way one puts themselves together. It means the idea is that one should come properly dressed. Boy, in our day and age, isn't that a, a nightmare anymore? When I go to church, I go before God. And so I look that way. I dress that way. I want him to see my very best. Because you know what? He deserves it. He deserves that in my life. And the way I dress, same thing we say at Wayside Christian School, is probably the way you're going to approach life. If you're dressed to go to the beach, then you need to go swimming. If you're dressed to worship, you need to dress to worship. Because we have an understanding that God is important in everything that we do. And so we find that adornment here means that, you know, we dress in a proper way when it comes to every situation we find ourselves in. 
But then he says, this adornment should be with modest apparel. Oh, boy. Man. America today is truly following that advice, isn't it? I'm not even sure we know what the word modesty means anymore. And I've got to confess, the deacons may be meeting after church this morning and kicking us out because in our house this morning there was an instance of immodesty. Titus came out of the shower very, very immodest. But you know the idea is that we should adorn ourselves in a special way. And folks, modesty is from God. Wouldn't it be a shame if an unsaved person entered the house of God with a broken heart and became so distracted by someone's dress that they refused the gospel and had a Christless eternity in hell. Wouldn't that be a shame? That's more than a shame. That'd be tragic. Therefore, what he's telling us is this, <clears throat> that we should do everything we can, ladies especially, because dress becomes a very important issue in the whole area, and I know that dates us too with how men and women think, but it's a fact. But we should do nothing that would cause one's thoughts to move away from the eternal God of the universe. That's my heart's cry. That should be your heart's cry. I want God to be exalted in every area. I want God to be placed on high. I want Him to have the preeminence in every area. And so we are responsible for everything that happens. And it says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 and verse 10, he's talking about little children. It'd be better for somebody to have a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the deepest sea than have one of these little ones not become part of the kingdom of heaven. That's my paraphrase. So we have responsibilities. That's why we have a church. That's why we gather together, <clears throat> is we are to encourage one another. We are to uplift one another. We are to be individuals that push our sights and, and bring our sights towards God in every area. And not only that do we do it ourselves, but we encourage other folks to push their sights and to view Him in every area of their life. I don't know which pagan writer wrote this, but no man is an island to himself. And it's true. It's not biblical, but it's true. So, this automatically rules out exposed flesh, form-fitting, all those type of situations that we find today in our culture because one wants people's minds to be placed where they should be. Now, it shouldn't just be in church. It should be any place. Modesty should reign. But the point is that Paul is very definite in how one should dress. Modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety. Well, I haven't heard that word for, I don't think, all my life except reading the Scriptures. Shamefacedness. What's that mean? It means reverence. It means respect. It means dignity. That's what he has in mind. You know, avoid, avoiding extremes, doing that which is 
able to again show the dignity of a person. That's why I put lady on this outline for you this morning because that's what a lady does. She has a certain dignity about her that others can see and be involved with. Sobriety is the other word that he uses here in verse 9. He says, with sobriety, controlled, has a spiritual purpose. What is selected even shows forth that God reigns in the heart and the life. Sobriety means that one is very conscious of what they are doing. Each piece that is placed on, they are conscious of their purpose and what the idea is because of the heart that's found there. Great word. And then he also says that her adornment should not be with broided hair, gold, pearls, or costly array. Don't go to it. Get rid of the idea here. Watch for the excesses. Be careful of the excesses. Oh, watch for overdoing. And that's really what Paul was saying. Because again, this, the main purpose of the passage is to do nothing to distract from the message and the purpose of why the church is meeting together. We've always got to keep our focus. We've always got to keep our minds and our hearts focused on why we are here, what we are doing, and our responsibility is to do what? Lift up the Son of God on high. And that's why this building is here. That's why this money is spent. Isn't it amazing, these places where people put so much of their resources into them and then they lose their purpose? God, may Wayside never lose its purpose. There's been too much put into this church by individuals in the past and in the present to cause it to be anything except a place where God's Word is being sounded forth. And that needs to be our heart's cry, that we are lifting His name constantly. And it's not so that we can be noticed. It's so that God can get the glory. Because really... Godliness does come from within, doesn't it? The word glamour is used much today. Glamour applies to the outside. Godliness applies to the inside. And what the inside is all about. We should be ones who claim and understand that we worship and honor and fear our God. And we want to obey Him in every area, in every way. And so Paul starts off, he says, in a worship service, there's going to have to be understanding that God is the focus. He's the plan. Verse 10, we go from the adornment, though, to the behavior. He says, but that which becometh godly, professing godliness with good works. I touched on that already, but the purpose really is godliness. Why are you here? Why did God put you here? Do you ever think about those kind of questions? You know, just think of yourself as a person. I mean, you could be any place else in the world. And why did God save you? He could have saved anybody else. He wanted to, but he saved you. And so, you know, the purpose that he has me here has to be something very special. He has put me into his charge, into his commission. His plan. When I read Paul's letters, he's constantly talking. You saw back in the first part of chapter 1. He said, God placed me in this position for a purpose. 
There's nothing about your life that's an accident. There's nothing about your life that just sort of happened. It's the plan of God in your life. And so he says, you know, we want professing godliness with good works. It mixes together. Our hearts are right, but then what we do is right. It transfers to how we live, to how people view us to the things they see that's going on in our hearts. We have great responsibilities, is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, you know, when it comes to the gathering of a church together, God's people in a special place together to hear, they need to have things done in a way that's going to point towards God, towards Christ, and who He is. And how's this going to be done? Well, that would be the attitude, verses 11 and 12. There's the attitude, first of all, of submission. There's that word. Let a woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, she should be a learner is the idea here. Does this mean that a lady should never raise her voice to speak in church? Of course not. We know that's not the interpretation that's going on here. His point is that there should be a sense of order when it comes to God's worship and God's house. I find this in many places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let everything be done decently and in order. Isn't it hard to understand something if everybody is talking at the same time? Have you ever been in a classroom? Long time ago, you know, when I was in a classroom. And everybody was talking at the same time. <clears throat> I didn't really get a lot out of it, did you? You just sort of heard this roar going on. Well, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about having some kind of a, a discipline and, and being heard and, and understanding what's going on. Again, the absence of debate, protest, done here with submission has the idea done with a certain heart attitude. You know, this is the same words that are used in marriage, and that's the way marriage functions the best because that's the way God has designed things to function. And so he says, you know, wouldn't it be strange if the lady was teaching in the church and then she goes home and she's in subjection in her home? That's a logical disconnect. How could that ever happen? It'd be a violation of all the principles. And so he's telling us here that this is the way God has designed things to occur and to do. And so submission becomes a great word. He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. She is not to be in a position of teaching men her role is very definite. And you know, when you think about it, there's many examples in the Bible of women who had some prominent roles, but then you've got to think about it, what was involved with that? Miriam is called a prophetess. I find no place in Scripture where Miriam ever said anything. It had to be her position. Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess, but I don't find any place where Miriam's wife spoke anything. Of course, the example everybody brings up is Deborah. You know, that's number one on the list. Well, what about Deborah? Well, she was a 
judge, it says, but when it came time to lead the soldiers, who did that? Gideon. No, not Gideon. Barak, there you go. Thank you. Somebody got me right. Barak did that. You know, so the idea is that we got to be careful how we look at these passages of scriptures. Well, what about Priscilla and Aquila? Didn't Priscilla teach Apollos? Well, she did it in private. She didn't do it in a public setting. And so therefore, the point that he's making here is that submission is the attitude. Wanting to learn. Open to what God has to say from His Word. And it's going to function best this way. He'll give some reasons in just a second, Paul. Keep, keep with me here as to why this is true. But the point is that Paul states to Timothy, this is how it's going to work the best. And he says, here's the reason. Here's some history behind this, verses 13 and 14. The history is found, it says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgressions. Boy, we spent a lot of time here yesterday talking about this passage with the men together. He said that this is why the reason behind all of this is because the order of creation. When God created, He made man, and I gave you the devotions on this, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And as he's looking around there in Genesis 2, verses 11 through 15, that was a Wednesday, I think, on the devotions. As he's looking around and Adam is naming the animals, he says, there is no help meet for Adam. And then we go down and he puts Adam to sleep. And of course, out of Adam's side, remember the great Matthew Henry statement, he did not take Eve out of Adam's head so that he, she could rule over him. He did not take Eve out of Adam's feet so that he could rule over her. He took her out of his side so that he could love her and show her the proper attention. Great statement by Matthew Henry. But it's true. And so this union becomes a help meet. These two form one unit together to face the challenges that they're going to face in the world together, and especially when it comes to their worship before God in the church. He says, this is the order of creation. This is the way God placed it together. And again, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe what God says or what we find a spouse today? You know, I hate to, no, I don't really hate to do this, but, you know, I find churches where, Ladies are pastors of churches. Now, you've heard me address. How in the world do you rectify that with Scripture? How do you take a passage such as this and say, <clears throat> well, you know, I believe everything else about Scripture, but I'm going to leave out that verse there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. What's the result of that? Well, all Scripture hangs together. If you start leaving out verses you don't like, again, back to my original argument, who is the authority? You are. Because you can pick and choose, like the smorgasbord, what you want. And we don't pick and choose God's Word. God has His Word for us. And so it says here, and, you know, and if you start violating this part, then it's another step 
then what's the next part? Why does he really mean that about homosexuality? Does he really mean that about, and you start making the list, and we just see the dominoes starting to fall, which is what's going on in our culture today. The dominoes are falling rapidly because we are not following, no, not us, editorial we, we are not following what God's Word states. So he says this is an example from creation. God had this order where she would be his helpmate. They would work together. There, there would be a, a, a common thread. You know, that's what the wedding vows are all about, putting two lives together. But you can't have two leaders. It only makes sense. And so we find that God understood that, and there's this pulling together inside of marriage that becomes so very, very important said this before, but you remember the old tug-of-war days whenever you would <clears throat> pull against each other. And man, you wore yourself out. Maybe you did pull them over your way, but you still were sitting there with your hands all bleeding, weren't you? Remember those days? Especially when the other team tied the thing to the tree in the back and you almost pulled the tree out of, out of, out of back. But that's what happens in so much marriage anymore. You know, they're just pulling and tugging, then all the energy is used whenever there are such more significant things we're going to see in verse 15 to put your time and energy in because, folks, parents need divine wisdom today. Grandparents need divine wisdom today like no other time in history. Children not only in our church, but in our homes, need to see examples of godliness because I am almost sure they're not going to see it out there in the world. I am sure they're not. They need to see it inside of the church with God's people. So he says the history not only is the order of creation, but Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgressions. Now, you know, this verse, when you read the account there in Genesis, and I had you read that on Thursday, Genesis chapter 3. We looked at it together. The point is that Eve was deceived because she went outside the divine order. Now, what's the order that God has placed here? God has placed that men should be in charge and ladies should be helping him. And what does Eve do in the whole Garden of Eden fall, she moves outside the divine umbrella of Adam's authority and she talks to the serpents. Now, we don't know all the details. All we know is what we find in Genesis 3. She moves though outside and who does Adam, and it's not because she's weak or not, I don't, I don't go for all that. It's simply that this was God's authority that God placed in position and the serpent came to her and her first response should have been to go to Adam and to them work at it together in God's scheme of putting things in a right way. But she violates that order. Now, are we saying that she herself is the... No, Adam is culpable. Because when you read the account in other places, 1 Corinthians talks about this, he probably does it voluntarily. Was he weak-willed? We don't know. I mean, put all this stuff in here. The point is that when they moved outside of the umbrella 
that God had designed, then tragedy happened. And we are today still, still dealing with that tragedy. Isn't that amazing? And, and I've had this illustrated to me just again this weekend that babies can have a fairly strong will. I'm not mentioning any names. They could be an awful like their mothers, right? I mean, it's just the way it happens. And nobody teaches them to do these things. I mean, they're so innocent. You go back to that nursery right now. I'm sure you go back there and you would see such innocent little things. But we can, we can credit Adam and Eve for choosing to follow or not follow God's direction. And when we move outside of God's prescribed plan and we say, we've got a better idea. No, we don't. Much of the situation we're finding today in our world is because we are moving out from God's prescribed plan. And we do not have a better idea. So we find that Adam violates his role, Eve violates her, her, role, her role, and then instantly disobedience comes. And I could... Turn you to Romans 4. I didn't have time to put that in your devotions this week, but Romans 4 would be the classic example of that. Whereby one man sinned into the world. Remember this passage? It's talking about Adam. It's not talking about Eve. It's talking about man. It's talking about Adam. And sin passed to all men so that all are sinners. As by one man also Christ came into the world, the second Adam, you know, the federal head, and provided for us Salvation, so that man would have that relationship that the first Adam lost in the garden. So it's, it's back into our reach. We are now able to be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. That's why the cross is so important. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why the burial of Christ and the whole gospel, that's what it's all about, is that He provided that for us in every area. After the appearance and the attitude, we have the abode. Notwithstanding, verse 15, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And what's he not saying, first of all? Well, let's talk about the gift. He's not saying that a lady has to have a child in order to be saved. And if she has a, and if she has a child, she's going to be saved. That, that would be works. And so you just have to kick that out of there to begin with. It's not what he's talking about here at all. But she does have a gift. And I don't care how hard we as men, this is my confession, especially in this day and age which we live today, I don't care how hard you try to experience childbirth. I mean, you know, today, man, when, I, when, when our kids were born, if they let you look at the child, you were pretty, you know, pretty privileged, right? Now, you know, I wouldn't want to do that, just me. But, you know, I mean, you're involved in everything. But still... Men cannot know what it is. It is a unique, God-given joy and responsibility that ladies alone possess. 
And I don't care what our society says. I don't care how they try to blend this thing. I don't care what transgendered male tries to figure this thing out. He is not going to experience what it means to bring life into this earth. Therefore, it's her gift. And ladies, you're gifted. You are the one who bring newness and vitality and life and joy into this world. What is the best place to work at in a hospital? Everybody says it's the nursery ward. Not up there where all this old codgers like I are. Or I am, not I are. I am. You see, my mind's going already. It's the place where all this new life is. It's a gift. You know what's coming next, don't you? How in the world could a judge sit on the bench or a legislative person sit in a chair and say that that life is not important? And Christian friends, you need to be sure you're voting for the right people. And Dean told me who those judges are. One is named French and one is named Kennedy. So that we are individuals who are putting people in positions. And we need to pray that Donald Trump gets somebody in there before all this thing falls apart. There's my political statement for the day. But let me say this, and I'm saying this to the closed group that we are together as a family. I wonder what it was like when Ruth Bader Ginsburg faced God two days ago, don't you? With the decision that she made about life and death. All I've heard are glowing reports. But think of the responsibility that lady had in the area of life. We need to pray for these people. That's my point. I'm not being disparaging. I'm just saying we need to pray for these people. They hold power. They hold authority. And that's my rabbit trail for the day. But the gift for the lady is this. You have tremendous responsibilities with the gift that God brings, allows you to bring into this world, and you need to be sure that you train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. What's her responsibilities after her role, after her gift? It's found in the last part of verse 15. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. It's not just biological growth we're talking about here. It's instilling the principles of godliness. There could be somebody in our nursery or one of our children's church groups on Wednesday night or Sunday. If God tarries, it's God gets a hold of their heart through your teaching if you're involved with that and through this church. And they could become a great evangelist, seeing many souls won to Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Wouldn't that be a great legacy? We need to be sure that we are instilling principles about God. That's why when we meet here together as a church, we need to know our focus. 
because most, institu most institutions today are not instilling godliness principles. It's all about take care of yourself. It's not about doing what God wants us to do. If, notice the word, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety, four things that they must involve themselves with, all four are very important. Faith, so many young men and young ladies have learned faith at the knees of their mothers, haven't they? What a place to learn how to love. You know, when you're young, you don't realize all those sleepless nights that one has because of their love for that one who's young. And for a mother to abandon all the other external issues of life and realize that her children are her number one responsibility today is looked upon with some kind of short-sightedness, but it is what God tells us in His Word. Holiness starts at home. It starts with the entertainment that's going on. It starts with the computer screens that are lit. Holiness starts in the mind. It starts with the atmosphere that is allowed in that home. And here's our word sobriety again, repeated twice. We must be sober thinkers. We must not fly open for every new invention, and entertainment but realize that certain things are true and certain things are wrong. And I fear today that we are fast moving away from any kind of a logical approach to life, that we are now being manipulated by the emotion and by the pictures that we see in media, as opposed to what we know to be true. I think that's another reason why God says that men should be in charge. Not that ladies cannot be logical, but they do have a tenderness that most men do not have. So the list here is fairly complete, isn't it? Paul says, Timothy... We want God's house to be a place that's functioning according to God's plan. And Timothy, this deals with the way you pray. It deals with the way we look and the way we act and our attitudes. Oh boy, next Sunday. It even deals with the preacher. Maybe I should have somebody else. Maybe I should have a net. No, we just violated this principle, didn't we? If I would, see, I'm glad he put that in there first, so I just can't turn that one over next week to her. But then we're going to say, well, what kind of a person should be the pastor or the elder of a church? And so next week, we may just skip that passage and go on down the deep end. We'll see how it happens. Sometimes you can do that, I guess. Uh, everybody will forget about it anyway next week. We won't going on. But let me just conclude with this. 
her appearance, her attitude, and her abode. Let me just ask you, what are you teaching your children? What are you teaching our fellow church children? What, what are you teaching them about faithfulness? What are you teaching them about stability? I mean, the list is long. What do we teach? What's, what's our lives teaching? It's not just the words that we are saying, because we say a lot of words. But it's the way that we are moving into this society, the way we are invading the society in which we live. What are we teaching? Because, as again, I read this, God gives us opportunities, maybe responsibilities, but opportunities. You know, He places children in our homes as an opportunity. He places children in our home to train and nurture. And that same thing is true for a church. We just dedicated here, what, two or three weeks ago. That was one of the questions, you know. We are responsible also for what kind of an atmosphere that we engender for our children to grow up in. That's why we have a Wednesday night program. That's why we bring these kids in on the bus. That's why we do all these things is so that we understand, you know, God loves them. In our own homes, we've got to be sure that we are showing forth the love of God. And may God's Word always be our standard, our practice. May we not fall traps to all of the ungodly ideas that are being floated around today. Even if it's being done by people who say they are very intelligent or whatever, God still has, remember, the only sufficient and perfect rule of faith and practice. If we want to do things God's way, then we're going to do it as He states it. And we must understand what He says, not what we think He says, not what we want Him to say. We must understand what He tells us in His Word, and we must be true to that, not just in this area, but every area of our life must be dedicated to Him completely and totally. Father, I thank you.